Turn, if you would, tonight to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. No, I don't want it, Brother Ray. I don't. No, you've already blown it. So this will be documented. It'll be a part of your permanent file that I did not have water tonight. So, all right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will get started. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight. I pray that you would help us for these next few moments to uh, set aside everything that we have before us this coming week. I know that it would be very easy to start thinking about what Uh, awaits us in the morning, what we've got to deal with, what we're going to have to wrestle with, uh, maybe even just the unknown. And I pray that you would help us tonight again to just put that to the side, that you'd help us to give attention to your word, and Lord, that you'd help us to uh, apply this uh, tonight so that if we should need it in the week, uh, we will have it to draw upon. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, I just want to make a couple of statements real quick. This morning, I let you out uh, early, and I don't know where the uh, line of authority is that I have to preach till noon. There's no line of authority that says that that you have to preach till noon, and if you get out early, you're early, and if you get out after that, you're late. But, But since we're used to going till about noon, I let you out early, and somebody may say, well, why did you preach shorter this morning? The answer is, I don't know. I quit when I was done, and so I always think that's the best thing to do. And tonight, uh, there's a good chance that we'll get out earlier than what we're used to. And you may say, well, why did he do it two times in a row? The answer is the same. I still don't know. Uh, If I could figure it out after all these years, I would have figured it out a long time ago, I would hope. And uh, it it is just what it is. It's, It's going to be probably a shorter than normal sermon, and that's okay if we retain it and if we use it uh, when we need it. Uh, The other thing that I'd like to say before we get into the message is this, is that there's going to be some overlap tonight with this morning's message. And again, why does that happen from time to time? Why does it seem to work that way? I don't know other than just to assume that that's where the Holy Spirit has us and it's a needed truth maybe that we just need to kind of be reminded of in a a more specific manner. And so I'm not apologizing. I'm not saying I'm sorry uh, that there is some overlap between this morning's message and tonight's message. Uh, It's just going to be that I trust that we need it, and we'll go from there. So that being said, tonight I want us to think about something that all of us as parents know and all of us as parents understand And that is this, is that you and I do a lot for our children, do we not? We do. And uh, even if your children are grown, we continue to do a lot for our kids, don't we? We do. Uh, It just seems as though kids require a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of energy, and it seems to be an ongoing process. I was talking to to, uh, Nathan and Mason out in the front, and I I was saying this to them. I believe it was to them, unless they walked off in boredom. Uh, I said, once you're a father, you're always a father. Once a parent, always a parent. And so you know what it's like when you bring the child home from the hospital, that is when the responsibilities begin, that is when the duties begin, and that's when the work begins. And so it's a a nonstop process from that moment up until probably we breathe our final breaths as parents. And so a part of this process we know, and, and, and I know that I've talked about this before, but part of the process is we feed them, we clothe them, we shelter them, we we keep them alive for the first several years of their lives, right? 
Well, we try to anyways, and, and we do as good of a job as we can to, to make sure that they're well taken care of and that all their needs are met. And then as they get a little bit older and they get a little bit more of a social life, what do they expect us to be? They expect us to be a taxi service, don't they? Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. I need to go here. Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. There's a birthday party here. Could you take me here? Could you do this? Could you do this? And, and I don't know if your kids are, are better than mine, but my kids have never once said in the midst of all this taxing and taking them here and doing this and doing that, hey, Dad, do you need some gas money? I know you're doing a lot for us right now, and you're running us here and you're running us there. Dad, do I, do I need to fill up the tank with gas this time? My, my kids never said that. Did your kids ever say that? No, no, okay. Uh, we're just going to ask you to, to, to just participate a little bit tonight, okay? Did your kids ever do that, or, or your kids like my kids? And uh, they just, it's, it's not anything that ever enters their mind, just like it never entered my mind to pay for a you know, tank of fuel for my parents. Uh, I just thought that's what parents enjoy doing. They enjoy getting off work and then running us here and picking us up and doing this and doing that. What else would they have to do in the evenings? So anyways, uh, my kids were ignorant, are ignorant, just like I was ignorant as it related to that. And, and that just seems to be the way it goes with kids. Now, we don't mind doing that. That's part of the joy, is it not? It's part of the experience. It's part of the fun. So I don't begrudge that. I don't regret that any more than any of you do. It's just part of the, the responsibility that goes with the territory. But here's what we also know, is there are times, especially as our kids get older, there are times that we need them to do things for us. Would you agree? You know, uh, we need that laundry folded and put away. We need the trash taken out. We need this done. We need that done. And, and so we say to our kids, would you please put away the laundry? Would you please put the dishes in the dishwasher? Would you take them out of the dishwasher and put them into the cabinets, wherever they belong? We ask our kids from time to time, or we did, didn't we, uh, would you please do these things for us? We've done it, right? Okay. Now let me ask you, maybe not every time, Maybe not even very often. But did you ever ask your kids to do something for you, and in response they kind of gave you a look like, what? You're asking me to fold the laundry? Don't you know I've got other stuff going on? Did, again, your kids may fill up your tank of, of gas and, and, you know, come make your bed for you and just treat you so special because they realize everything that you do for them. But, but most kids don't do that, right? And so there have been times that we've said to our kids, hey, need you to do this, and they kind of look at you like, why would you expect me to do this? Did your kids or have your kids ever rolled their eyes at you? Like, okay, I guess I will. I don't want to, but okay, whatever. Now, I know that I've talked about this before, and, and I know this is somewhat repetitive. Have you, have you ever heard him just go, yes? Has that ever happened? Like, why, why did you just breathe that hard, kid? Because I know you didn't just get done, like, running or something. There's no reason for you to be running that hard. All I did was ask you to put away the dishes, and you went, Yes, sir. Right there for me, personally, that's just whenever I say wrong response. Wrong response. 
Do you know what I've done for you this week? Do you know what your mother has done for you this week? Do you know how busy we have been trying to get you here and do this and take care of this and all these other things? Uh, That is not the right response. I'm asking you to help out just a little bit. I don't need your attitude. I don't need you rolling your eyes. I don't need you breathing too hard. I don't need you looking at me like I'm dumb. I just need you to help. So let me ask you something. Why would our children respond this way? Why would they do this? Well, I'm going to be very polite tonight. I'm going to be very politically correct in how I approach this, okay? Because my flesh wants to say they do it because this, because, you know, that's what I think sometimes. But, but the polite answer would be, why do our kids do this? Because they are immature and they are selfish. Right? I think it's very polite, again, compared to what I'd like to say of it. But they're, they're, they're just immature. They don't have the maturity that allows them to realize, you know, Dad and Mom have been pretty busy this week, and in addition to everything they've had to do, they've taken care of me, and they've made sure that we had a place to stay or I've had a place to sleep the last week, and, and they've met my needs, and I haven't gone hungry, and I'm not worried about going hungry. See, their lack of maturity keeps them from understanding what all has been done for them by us. And then their selfishness, just in general, leads them to only concern themselves with themselves. So it doesn't matter what you've done for them. The fact that you are now asking them to do something for you, which is an inconvenience to them, it now requires them to not be able to watch TV or play the video game or whatever it may be. And so because their world is wrapped around them, they have a hard time seeing the need to do for you what you've asked them to do. You understand this, right? Now you say, well, that's a long illustration. Well, it's a short sermon, so don't be disappointed, all right? It's you and I as parents doing much for our kids. We then ask them to do something on our behalf, and they struggle to do so with the right attitude and the right spirit because they are immature and they are selfish. Now, that in mind, I want us to look in verse number 10. In verse number 10, we have the writer making a statement that if we're not careful, you can read too much into it. You've got to remember that... The context in which he wrote these words was an environment and a culture that the people would have been very familiar with. They would have completely understood. They would not have had a hard time connecting the dots in the writer's thought process. So in verse number 10, he says, we have an altar. Now, I don't believe that this is a reference to any kind of a spiritual altar. I don't believe this is any kind of a reference to a heavenly altar or anything of that nature. I believe he is speaking to them as a Jew to fellow Jews. All right? So as a Jew to a fellow Jew, he writes and he says, We have an altar whereof they have no right or authority to eat which serve the tabernacle. So we understand what the tabernacle was. That was the place where the Jews would bring their offerings, where they would bring their sacrifices to this altar. And he said that those who served in the tabernacle, that there were certain offerings that would have been brought that they did not have the right to eat. Now you say, well, what exactly is he talking about? Well, if you wanted to take the time later, you could turn to Leviticus chapter 4, read the first few verses of that chapter, and you find that there were certain sin offerings that were presented at the tabernacle or that would have been presented at the temple, and the priests were not allowed to eat of the offering or the sacrifice that was brought. So in verse number 11, That thought is built upon, he says, For the bodies of those beasts, or those animals, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, 
are burned without the camp. And that goes exactly in line with what is said in Leviticus chapter 4, that the bodies of these beasts, uh, that for the sacrifice, they would have been burned without the camp. Everything would have been destroyed. Everything would have been consumed as a part of this particular sin offering. So in verse number 12, he transitions that thought into this, where he says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So he is bringing their attention to something that they would have been familiar with, that they would have been very mindful of, the tabernacle, the temple, where the offerings were taking place, where the sin offerings would have been presented, but the bodies of the beast would have been consumed outside the city or without the camp. So then he said, now here's what we've got in comparison. We have Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So what does it mean whenever he talks about Jesus suffering without the gate? Well, that would have been a reference to the crucifixion of Christ being taking or taking place outside the city walls or the city limits of Jerusalem. You understand this, right? Okay, so here is Christ, and the Scripture says that he suffered without or outside the gates of the city or outside the gates of Jerusalem. And I don't know if you're guilty of this. I suspect many of us are. But if you're like me, I've mentioned this before, here's what I'm guilty of doing. I am guilty sometimes of reading something and not really considering the weight of everything it is that the writer is trying to convey. Have you ever been guilty of this? You're reading along, you read the words, you, you process the words to an extent, but you don't really process everything that is being conveyed in this. So I want us to think about this for just a moment. He speaks of how Jesus suffered without or outside the gate. What does it mean whenever it talks about him suffering? It means this, everything that he endured in light of or in relation to the crucifixion that paid for the penalty of our sin. Does this make sense? It is a reference in part to the betrayal of Judas of Jesus Christ. You remember this, don't you? He was betrayed by Judas. I, I think, and I know that I've said this before, but I think most of us would be hurt if we were betrayed by someone that we loved and someone that we had invested in and someone that we cared about. We would be bothered if we were betrayed, even if we suspected or we knew it was going to happen, we knew it was going to take place, it would still bother us. It would bother us immensely if everyone else who swore to be loyal to us until their death forsook us when times got rough. It would bother me at least. Personally, I don't enjoy standing alone if I don't have to. Yet here is Christ and what has happened. Judas has betrayed him. The other disciples have forsaken him. We know that Peter denied him. We talked about that last Sunday morning. And then it sets up the entire trial process. And we know that all of this was a facade of legal actions. None of this was going to change the course of what was going to take place for Christ. And so in the midst of all this, here's what's happening he is being beaten, he is being mocked, 
He is being uh, abused. He's had his beard torn out. He's had the crown of thorns placed on his head and, and shoved into his head. Christ has been beaten to the point of, of no recognition, many believe. And so here's what Christ is doing. And Christ is suffering this. And then he has to make his way from inside the city to outside the city to Golgotha. And there they lay him on the cross. And there they nail his hands and his feet to the cross. And there he is then basically suffocating to death. They literally tortured Christ until he died. That's what it's talking about when it speaks of the suffering without the gate. Now, again, I think we need to be mindful of that because if we're not careful, we'll just read that he suffered without the gate. and we'll say, Yeah, he suffered without the gate and, and move on. We need to try to remember, and I know that our minds can't grasp this, but we need to try to remember what Christ endured as he took the sins of mankind upon him there on the cross. So he says, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So so what was the purpose of the death of the cross? Well, I've already mentioned it, but to be more specific to verse number 12, it was for the purpose of sanctifying the people. What does it mean to sanctify? It means this, to be cleansed or to be purified from our sin in addition to being set apart. So why did Christ die on the cross for the sins of mankind? He did so so that we might have our sins purified, so that we might have our sins cleansed. And we've got to remember this. He did this willingly. He did this voluntarily. Christ was not forced to do this. Christ was not required to do this. This was set in place before the foundations of the earth, before man was created. It was known that Christ was going to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And so why did Christ come to this earth and why did he suffer and and, and have to deal with that public shame and humiliation? He did that so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be saved. And again, he did that voluntarily. That was something that he was willing to take on himself without any griping, without any complaining or bemoaning. It was something he was willing to do for you and I. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this. I don't want to make this lighter than it needs to be by any stretch. But I want us to think about this. What Christ did for us, in a sense, certainly not to the same extent, but in a sense, it is like what a parent does for their children, providing and making sure and supplying and, 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 and making sure that every need is met. Here is Christ willingly making sure spiritual needs are met. All we have to do is become a recipient of it by humbling ourselves and calling out to Christ to save us, all right? So, so everything was made available and everything was provided by the work of Christ there on the cross. So in verse number 13, here's what the writer said. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. So where was Christ crucified? He was crucified outside the city, correct? Outside the gate, that's where the shame and the humiliation and the public disgrace took place. It did not happen within the city limits. It was somewhere away from everything else, kind of like where the bodies of the beast were burned with the, uh, without the camp. So here is Christ in this shame and humiliation and the suffering that he dealt with. It too takes place outside the camp. So the writer says in verse number 13, Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. What does it mean? It means this. Let's go to where Christ is. 
Well, where is Christ? He is outside the camp. He is outside the, the city limits. He is outside where, where things are normal and things are just routine. Here is Christ, and what is He doing? He is suffering the shame, and He is suffering the disgrace. And the writer says what we need to do is we need to go to where Christ is doing what? Bearing the reproach. That's what he said in verse number 13, right? Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, this is a, a writer, obviously a believer, writing to other fellow believers. And what he is saying to them is this. Christ suffered. He suffered immensely. For what reason? So that we might be sanctified, so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be purified, so that we might be set apart, so that we might be able to go to heaven one day. Okay, Christ did all these things for you and I, so as a result of what Christ has done for us, you know what we need to do for Him? We need to go where Christ is at, being willing to bear His reproach or His shame and His disgrace and His humiliation in our lives. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Cool people don't like reproach. Hip people don't like reproach. The trendy people don't care for reproach. The ones who are worried about their image and the ones who are worried about their reputation, they don't like reproach. And yet here is what the writer is saying. He is saying, for everything that has been done for you, you need to be willing to go to where Christ is, where that place of shame and reproach is at, and you need to be willing to bear that as one of his followers. Now, why would this even need to be said? Because it does not come natural. Bearing reproach is not something that comes natural. So these individuals who were already struggling, if we go back to chapter 10, if you go back to chapter 12, you find that they're already struggling in their walk with God. And here is what he said, you need to be willing to identify with the shame and the reproach of Jesus Christ because of everything he has done for you. It really is a simple principle, right? Consider everything that's been done for you. Now, don't be ashamed to identify with Christ. Well, that's not natural. That's not normal. That's not what my tendencies would be. Some may say, and the writer would say, it doesn't really matter. That's what you need to do. Now, tonight I want to throw some things out here for us just to, to consider a couple of moments of this. I want us to think about something I've said many, many, many times before, and that is this. For you and I to call ourselves Christians, nobody cares. Nobody cares that, that you are a Christian. Nobody cares that you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. Especially in our parts, you can do that, and, and you're still okay. You may be around people who are drinking and cursing and, and having a great old time, and you tell them you're a Christian, they say, well, hey, me too. And you're like, okay, well, shucks, I wouldn't have thought that, but nonetheless. All right, I'm just saying, in our culture right now, in our climate right now, it's not really that big a deal to identify ourselves as a Christian. But where it becomes a big deal is this. 
is whenever you and I actually start living the Christian life. In front of those who would like to name it, but don't necessarily want to live it. Again, I know I've said this before. I'm just going to throw it out there again tonight. The people that you'll go to work with tomorrow, they don't care that you were in church tonight. They don't care that you were in church today. They don't care that you sang songs about because he lives and whatever else we've sung today. They don't care. But be a Christian in front of them tomorrow and see how quickly it offends them and gets them upset. Whenever they start to use that language that you know is not appropriate and you say, hey, listen, I'm a Christian, I'd rather you not talk in front of me that way, you watch and see how, how happy they are that you're identifying yourself as a Christian then, right? You know, if, if you are with them tomorrow and, and they're using that, that crude language and they're telling dirty jokes and, and you stand up to them and you say, hey, listen, I'm a Christian and I don't find much humor in that and I just I really kind of find that offensive and so I'd rather you not talk about those types of things in front of me. Listen, you know what you'll get? You'll get some looks. You'll get some comments made. You, you'll get some things pointed your way that, that really are not that enjoyable to, to partake of or to be the recipient of. It's just part of the territory, though, that if you're really going to live it, there will be some reproach associated with it. So at work tomorrow, it's very possible. It's possible that, as I kind of alluded to this morning, it's possible that there would be some in your family who don't mind you doing this until it starts confronting them with where they're at. They're fine if you wanted to be in church today. It's good. Just don't ever talk to them about being in the house of God. They're okay that you claim to be a Christian, that you sing the songs, that you do what you do here. But, but don't ever talk to them about their need for a relationship with Jesus Christ because that is when they'll come back at you with the insults and the derogatory statements, whatever it may be. And that's when there is some shame and some reproach associated with you and I following the Lord. Sometimes fellow church members don't mind us being here, but they just don't want us to be Christians in front of them away from church. Amen. Anyways, just let that one sink in for a minute. You know, it was cool that we said that at church, but now we're not at church, so let's go ahead and live like we always live. And if you confront them on how they're currently living, though now away from church, they'll be looking at you like, who are you, you self-righteous holy roller, whatever the comments may be. Anyways, I'm just saying, not every person who sits at church really wants to live it on Monday for the rest of the week. I'm just saying there's a reproach associated with identifying with Christ. Now here's what happens sometimes. You and I are called upon to bear this reproach, correct? Whenever it should require that of us, you and I need to be willing to bear His reproach. But you know what happens on occasions? Maybe not for everyone, but you know what happens on occasion for at least some of us? We respond kind of like a child. I don't want to bear the reproach. I just want to stay cool with everyone. I get tired of being the one that's laughed at. I get tired of the one who's made fun of. I get tired of being the one who, who people talk about behind my back. I get tired of that. Have you ever been there? 
it's no fun sometimes being the one who is bearing the reproach. So you get tired of the family making the comments. You get tired of the co-workers making the comments. Whatever it is, you feel like you're left out. You feel like you're ostracized, and, and you just don't like it. So sometimes, though we're called upon to bear the reproach, our response is, Okay. Maybe not literally, but we kind of roll our eyes like, This is ridiculous. I get so tired of being the person who's laughed at, who's made fun of, who is rejected, who's scorned, who's, who's mocked, whatever it may be. Have you ever had those times where you were suffering, and, and, and that's really a poor choice of words, but, but you were having to bear a bit of the reproach of your faith? Have there ever been occasions where you thought, I don't like this? I'm just saying I've been there. You know what we need to be reminded of? We need to be reminded of what's been done for us. He was willing to suffer so that we might be sanctified. He was willing to suffer so that we might be saved. Kind of like a kid, here's what happens. Our immaturity and our selfishness is revealed in those moments. Christ has done all these things for us so that we might be saved, so that we might have the joy of, of heaven one day, and now we're being called upon to be reproached, to be laughed at, to be made fun of, to have some family member say some things that we didn't think were too polite. Okay, in that moment, here's what we're revealing if we respond to it incorrectly. We're revealing our immaturity because maturity says, you know what, they can deal with it. I'd rather serve the Lord any day than to have my family be the ones that I bow down to and make them happy when it's Christ who saved my soul. It reveals our immaturity if we're going to surrender who we are as believers to some co-worker because we don't want to deal with the humiliation that they might try to bring upon us. Now, again, this may not ever happen to you, but for those who have struggled with this, you know what I'm talking about. It, it reveals our immaturity sometimes, and, and at times it reveals our selfishness. Now, see, that's why I was nice earlier talking about our kids, because I want to be nice talking about me. I don't want to call me stupid, okay? So I'm just going to say I'm immature and I'm selfish at times. Sometimes I just I want it to be easy. Sometimes I just want it to be free of any kind of, of, of suffering or any kind of obstacles. I just want Christianity to be easy, and it's not always easy. So it's not always about me. It's not always about my feelings. It's not always about my emotions. It's not always about what I want. So what I need to do is I need to go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. I need to be that follower of Christ wherever he is, whatever kind of shame is associated with it. I need to bear his reproach, mindful of what he did for me. Now, if I can be mindful of what he did for me, then anything this world throws at me really will seem like, like nothing too significant or too important. And then in verse number 14, this kind of helps as well. He said in verse number 14, For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. You know what that is basically saying? It's basically saying here on this earth we don't have a permanent residence. 
You know what we're doing? We are seeking one to come. You know what we're doing? We're looking for that city where we will have a continual abiding residence. One day we're going to get to heaven. One day we're going to get to leave this earth. One day we're going to get to spend forever with Jesus Christ, with God in heaven. And that is what we are looking for. So if we remember that we're just pilgrims passing through, if we remember that we're just sojourners, if we remember that this is only a temporary dwelling place for us, you know what it does? It helps us bear the reproach so much more. So here's what I think I lose sight of, and I don't even have to say I think, I know. Here's what I lose sight of sometimes. I lose sight of the fact that there is more to life than what I'm living right now. I may have to deal with some reproach for a couple of days or maybe a few weeks or whatever it may be, but I lose sight of the fact that that's only a couple of days or a few weeks or a couple of months in light of eternity. They may ostracize me the rest of my life. That may be 60, 70 years. I don't know what it'll be. But I do know this, that in comparison to what eternity will be, whatever I would have to suffer right now is nothing. But if I'm not mature enough to remember the city that I'm looking for as opposed to the city that I'm currently living in, then I'll not be willing to bear the reproach that I need to bear because I'm so consumed with this life as opposed to the life to come in the presence of God. So if I can kind of summarize all this and and hopefully send us away with something that's easier to remember, here's what I would say. I would say the writer says, you need to remember what's happened. Christ was willing to suffer for us. Outside the city where the shame and the rebuke and the reproach took place, Christ did all of that for us willingly. So as a Christian, what do I need to do? I need to get up and I need to identify with Christ and bear whatever reproach comes with identifying with him. They laugh at you, fine. They mock you, fine. They ridicule you, fine. They, they dismiss you and they won't allow you to be a part of the events anymore. It, it, listen, it's no big deal. Don't be selfish and don't be immature. Remember, this is not your final home. You're looking for a city where one day you'll spend forever with Jesus Christ. That's what you and I need to be mindful of. Am I the only one who struggles from time to time? I don't know. In this church, are there other people who struggle with this? I don't know. But if you struggle with it, I hope the message helps. Remember what he's done and remember what we have in store. And hopefully that will help us be the Christians we're supposed to be, even in light of this suffering. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to just remember for a few moments what you have done for us, what you did for us willingly, voluntarily. Lord, you didn't have to do it per se, but you were willing to do it. So I pray that you'd help us today to remember how blessed we are that you were willing to die on the cross so that we might be sanctified. God, I pray that you'd help us to be mature enough to remember that, that we would be selfless enough to live in light of that, and, God, that we would live in light of eternity as well and be willing to bear your reproach. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.